This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's an extreme pleasure for me to introduce Dr. Ellen Williams, who became director of ARPA-E program in December of 2014. Uh, you've heard me say it once, and I'll say it again. What we are doing here with the bend the curve and the objectives, that plan and the ARPA-E scope and mission and objectives are literally twins separated at birth. So we could not have a better representative from Washington than Dr. Williams. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for that kind introduction. I'm really delighted to be here and have a chance to uh, talk at this uh, forum. I'm going to tell you about ARPA-E. You can see up at the top that our uh, logo or our, our is changing what's possible. Sounds a lot like bending the curve. And so whether you're changing what's possible or bending the curve, uh, when it comes to energy, it's a big deal. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what, that, what that's involved. But the main point of my talk is to... Uh, talk about how important innovation is to helping us meet the goals that we've been talking about all this all today. So changing energy is really hard. Okay, there's many people who think we shouldn't change energy. There's many people who think we can't change the energy sector. But what this slide shows you is that in fact the energy sector has always been changing and it will continue to change. So, from the time 150 years ago when we were a small uh, agrarian economy where we got almost all of our energy from burning wood to the present day where we're a large industrial economy, where we get most of our energy by burning fossil fuels, there has been tremendous change. That's type change on the time scale of 150 years. But if you look over the, uh, the more recent years, you can see that on a decadal time scale, there's also lots of change in terms of which energy or which fossil fuel is involved in the mix. Those changes always involve pain and lots of people unhappy and some people happy, but those changes are always happening. One other change that we're seeing over the last couple of decades is a big increase in renewable uh, low-carbon energy. That's in the upper right there. It's a hugely important change. You all know that it's important and you know why it's important uh, because of the CO2 implications. That change is not happening fast enough, and we need to accelerate that change. So that's... Uh, right up the alley of RPE. So you heard about RPE's authorization. These words are right out of our authorizing language. We are put in place to address issues of reducing energy imports, reducing emissions, and improving energy efficiency across the entire energy sector, all things that are essential for addressing the issues of climate change. Our mission uh, is to do it by looking for innovation, cutting-edge new technologies, things that can make a difference. And if you look at the very bottom line there, things that the private sector would not be likely to undertake because of the high financial risk and uncertainty. So our job is to find great new ideas, accelerate them, and move them forward, take the risk out, so that then the commercial sector can pick them up and get them into application. And our goals economic security, energy security, and uh, technology advantage. Okay, because of this structure, we have a very dynamic operating mode. 
So what we do is we identify problems where we can make an, think we can make an impact, and we invest in them for three to five years. Each of these little circles represents a different focused program that we've identified and invested in. Each of those programs has within it about 10 or 15 projects. About 40% of our project teams come from universities, and about another 35% come from small businesses. So we're really picking up innovators, entrepreneurial people who have new ideas and things to make happen. Um, so you can see the time variability in our programs. And then from top to bottom, you can see us looking at different parts of the energy sector. So up at the top, we're looking at electricity generation and the electric power grid. And I'm going to give you some examples of that later on, including more recently a big focus on distributed generation and stability of the grid. We do a lot, oh, and, and early on, a lot of work on carbon capture. We do a lot of work on efficiency, industrial efficiency, power efficiency, and home efficiency. And then we do a lot of work on the transportation sector, all areas where there's huge gains to be made in reducing the amount of CO2 we put out into the atmosphere. As we go through these problems and developing these technologies, we're always asking the question, if it works, will it matter? And what that means to us is it's not enough to just create a really super technology that does cool things. Okay, at the very least, our really great new te technology has to be economically competitive. But what we'd really like is to have it be economically attractive. We want people to want to take up these new technologies and say, this is going to drive down my costs, this is going to make my life better. So let me tell you a little bit. I'm just going to give you, go through very quickly and give you examples of what we're doing in some of those programs. And, you know, if you give me the whole afternoon, I'd do them all. <laughs> I couldn't stop talking, but fortunately I have a time limit. Okay, so let me talk about the Genie program. That's kind of in the middle center top there. This is one of our grid integration programs, and you heard some comments this morning about the issues of the electric power grid. Okay. So what's the issue? Here's Genie. It's Green Electricity Network Integration. It's a program we ran uh, beginning around 2012. What's important is that we have to have an electric power grid that works, that moves the electricity from where it's generated to who needs it completely reliably. That's really important. But we're facing a problem. Our grid grew organically over many, many decades. It's not designed for the situ situation we have today. It's struggling under changing patterns of demand, under changing patterns of generation, under stresses from natural disasters, and it frankly is becoming a barrier to the integration and acceptance of uh, renewable intermittent energy sources. So what's old is what we're seeing there on the right. That's a little chart of the spot prices that a distribution company is paying for electricity to send to its customers across the Midwest. Now, if you look over on the left, there's lots of transmission wires in that area. But if you look over on the right, the people on the western side are practically being paid to take the electricity, whereas the people on the right-hand side are paying a premium price. That's because cheap source of electricity over on the left can't get through the transmission wires to the customers on the right. And so they wind up buying more expensive uh, electricity from something like a gas peaker plant. This problem is called congestion, and the result of congestion is curtailment. Low, power, low cost, clean energy sources like wind are curtailed, shut back, because there's no way to move the electricity from where it's generated to where you need it. And that's a big problem. But what's new, is that we can deal with that problem. We can deal with that problem very economically. There's two things we need. We need hardware. 
they can move the electrons where we want them on those transmission wires. Right now, it's turn on the electricity, it goes where it goes. We need to have some valves in the transmission wires, and those are called power flow controllers. This is just one example from a small company called Smart Wires. It's put together power flow controllers, and you can see they've got them on demonstration and testing right now. The other thing that we need is we need to be able to control the power, but we also need to know how to control the power because these lines are incredibly complicated. So knowing which wire to turn on or off, how to adjust the valves, is a hard problem. But fortunately, there are incredibly smart mathematicians in this world, and so they have uh, we've demonstrated, and this is a result from Boston University, the ability to use new mathematical applied math algorithms and put them in place to look at the entire grid and solve the problem and say, what's the best way to configure our valves that we're now going to be able to put in place to get the electricity where we need it? With just, just those changes in hardware and software, we can go from the canonical, you can't have more than 20% uh, renewable energy on the grid, to at least 40 or 50% renewable energy on the grid with no other changes. Real change is really possible, and innovation can really help here. Okay, another example, our metals program. It's in the kind of middle there in a yellow ball. So this is a program that addresses lightweight metals. And why is that important? It's important all across the transportation sector. We would like to lightweight vehicles, both air vehicles and ground vehicles, so they use less energy for transportation. And what we, the way we do that is we use aluminum and titanium and magnesium instead of steel and iron. But what's the problem with that? The problem with that is that titanium and magnesium and uh, aluminum are expensive to process. The ores, it takes a lot of energy to process the ores, and so you can lose 10 to 80% of the energy benefits you get from lightweighting and transportation by the energy costs of making the metals. The other problem, of course, is that the metals are expensive, and so that expense then serves as a barrier to people wanting to uptake these lightweight materials and improve efficiency. What's new? Clever metallurgists, outstanding technologists are coming up with new ideas and new ways to process these ores at lower temperatures. We think we can drive both the energy costs and the costs down, and we've got teams demonstrating that today. Okay, another one, focus on the upper right there. It's an electric generation prop, uh, program, and this is full-spectrum optimized conversion and utilization of sunlight. Our, our program directors love acronyms, but what's it about? What it's about is the problem that the sun shines only part of the time, and we need electricity all the time. And so what we'd like to do is have some way to store our solar energy so we can use it whenever we want it. One way that people have thought about doing this is to turn the sunlight into heat, store the heat in a material, and then retrieve it to generate electricity whenever we want it. The problem there is that these huge conversion and solar uh, concentration towers just haven't proved economically competitive, and we haven't been able to drive them into commercial uptake. So what's new in this program is we're looking at taking the idea of the solar heat and combining it with traditional photovoltaics, generation of electricity. So you know the solar spectrum comes in different colors. The blue, green, and uh, yellow ones are the colors that are good for photovoltaics, and the red colors are the colors that are good for heat. And so what we're going to do in this program, and we're, we've got teams that are really working hard on this, is split the spectrum, 
collect the, the energy that's good for electricity, that's higher value, sells for more, and also collect the red spectrum for generating heat that we can use for storage. So we think we can break even and do better economically with this one and make solar thermal storage a reality. Okay. One more, Delta program. This has to do with building efficiency. So it's kind of the, on the far middle right bottom there. This is one of our newer programs that I just wanted to tell you about it because it's so off the wall. Okay, so the problem in Delta has to do with thermal management in buildings. And of course, we're interested in that because buildings use a huge amount of, electric, of our, our energy in the United States and around the world. And if you look at this little chart on the top part of it, you can see that uh, housing, uh, heating, cooling, and ventilation uh, amounts to about 14% of all the energy that we use in the United States. That's a huge amount, and any reduction we can do in that will be really important. So what are we doing in Delta? The old way we do things in buildings is we heat the whole building or we cool the whole building even though we, the people, occupy a pretty small space in that building. And the question our program is asking is, is it possible to change that paradigm? Could we create a situation where we just tailor the heating or cooling for the personal comfort of the occupants and let the temperature of the rest of the building oscillate over a wider region where it wouldn't be comfortable? We could save 5% or so of, the, of U.S. energy if we could do this overall. So I didn't show you some examples from the other ones, but these are amazing. We put out a call for proposals on this concept, and we got such amazing creative proposals on ways to deal with this problem. So here's some of them. Personal heating and cooling. Ventilation comes to you. I love this one. Okay, <laughs> Little robot that follows you around, senses whether you're hot or cold, and adjusts the temperature. I would definitely name my robot. Okay. Uh, Less fun, but you walk into the room, the heat vent senses where you are, it's, it points to you, and it sends a properly designed stream of air over you to adjust to your perfect temperature. That's really great, and it sounds crazy, but it's not crazy. Uh, advanced manufacturing is making it possible to do so many new things that we couldn't think of possibly doing before. And then the other one is your clothing. There is so much going on in the design of fabrics and textiles that it's now possible to think about creating a cloth that can change its properties from holding the heat in against your body to letting the heat out against your body, depending on its sensing of how you're doing. And that kind of mimics the properties of shark skin. So we have several projects on designing proper textiles that would allow you to be comfortable regardless of the external temperature in the room. So that's, a, that's just a quick highlight of what's going on in some of our programs. Each of these has been designed to have a big impact in terms of what might happen in the future and to address problems that we think wouldn't be addressed otherwise. So I'd like to just finish up with something you all know about, which is, again, it has to do with the future. The plot on the left there is the uh, Energy Information Agency's projection of what's going to happen with electricity use in the United States in the next uh, 30 years or so. And you can see their projection is pretty much flat. And that's nowhere near good enough. We have to go down in our energy use. Um, so that's just a projection. It's not what has to happen. It's not what should happen. We can change the future. And we can change the future to lots of different scenarios. One possible scenario is shown over on the right. And you can see what happens. Uh, that's an IEA projection to get from our present 
emissions of about 5.6 gigatons per year to where we need to be in 2040 as just under two. Uh, we don't have to cut our energy use by, uh, by more than 50%. We can just cut our energy use through efficiency by 20% and then do some changes in the types of energy that we, we use uh, using a lot more renewables and uh, bio-oriented uh, or energy sources to drive down our CO2 emissions. So we can really change the future. Uh, many of the technologies that are available today are too early stage. But with creativity and innovation, we can drive those energy costs down and we can get to the future that we want. And so I'd just like to invite you all to come to our annual summit. We hold a summit every year in Washington, D.C., where all of our technology performers come and put on a showcase of their technologies. We would love to see you there. So thank you very much. I have a question that relates to one of the discussions we had yesterday, which is about advocating for persuasively communicating the need for more investment of the kind that ARPA-E is doing. And you, we all know, do yeoman's work in terms of advocating with Congress. Do you have any particular um, things that you can comment on with regard to that very challenging issue? Because the ARPA-E budget, as we all know, is not what it was intended to be, and it's been flat like so much of the other um, research agencies. Uh, yeah. what's, your, what's your take on just how we can advocate, we in the scientific community and you at RPE, for more support of this kind, which is so important? Yeah. I, I think that what I see about RPE that um, has kind of cross-aisle cross appeal is the idea that we really are driving towards commercially viable or commercially attractive solutions and that we're really looking for change uh, and that we don't stick with a program for a real long time. We push on it, we try to make it work, and when it works, we hand it out to the private sector. So we're starting, agency's young, it's only been in place for about six years. We're starting to see successes in terms of products on the street. Uh, but our early successes we've been measuring in terms of how many of the teams that we fund from ARPA-E get additional funding afterwards to further develop their technologies. And they're doing really well. About 20% of our teams have been getting follow-on funding from the private sector, and another 20% have been getting follow-on funding from applied development uh, other agencies in the federal government. So the message is that we're really able to drive this type of innovation and that we're really pushing innovation to get out and positively affect the commercial sector, I think, are positive ones. I'll take the prerogative of the, of the chair for a moment. Uh, the relationship between RPE and the California Energy Commission is a very critical one. Yes. And there's a couple of examples where uh, the California Energy Commission has set aside money and basically said, if you win RPE, here's your, here's your matching funds. Uh, and there's an MOU. Can you maybe expand a little bit on the relationship that you currently have and where you see that might go in the future? Yeah. So that's, that's, uh, that covers it. When we release a call for proposals, the California Clean Energy Commission evaluates whether it, our call fits in their mission space, and if it does, they may allow California companies to apply to CEC to pick up their matching requirement because we require 
small businesses to put in a 10% match because we want some skin in the game. CEC will put in that 10% if they win the competition. That's tremendously helpful, for the, especially for very small companies who don't want to dilute their equity early on. Uh, another thing that we've worked with the CEC on is occasionally when a company is doing really, really well, we see that they've got a great technology, but industry isn't going to be quite ready to pick it up until they see more demonstration that it's actually going to work in the field. CEC has uh, put forward uh, funds to help develop that technology and put it in demonstration. And that's hugely beneficial because it's very hard to convince conservative energy companies that they want to pick up new technologies. Um, the the chart you show into the future about what's possible with reductions yeah. shows nuclear uh, playing an important role uh, in that. So yes. I would say that with the majority, if not overwhelming majority, of most environmental NGOs being so opposed to it, with yeah. concerns about storage and leaks, not to mention the cost issues in yes. the U.S., are they wrong about those concerns? Yeah. What do you see with the cost? And yeah. how do you and, – and why is that in the future? Okay. That is one possible future. I actually picked this chart. It's from the IEA, the International Energy Agency. I picked the chart because it was one of the few I could find that had a very clear breakdown in the terms of the same energy categories. It doesn't have to be that way. I also think that they're, they have a very large bioenergy section, which I think is also not particularly – Reasonable. There's lots of different ways to get to that future. Oh, should it be that way? I think short-term nuclear is very attractive, really important. That's my personal belief. Uh, RPE actually isn't funding nuclear right now, um, but that's not because I think it's a bad idea. Thank you. Yeah. With that, we uh, we need to move on to okay. our next section. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.